following is a teaching message from Shaw Community Church. For more information on Shaw, for our teaching resources, visit www.shaw.org.nz. So we're in this series on origins, and we're working our way through Genesis 1 and 2 and 3, these first three chapters of the Bible, these really foundational chapters that set the scene, set the stage for the entire rest of the biblical story. And so very formative uh, chapters. We've worked our way through Genesis 1 now, so we've done the seven days of creation. And now we're pressing on into chapter 2. We did the beginning of chapter 2 yesterday, looking at the, uh, the seventh day, the day of rest, and the way that God comes to rest within creation. After creating the heavens and the earth, then God himself comes and rests within this temple of creation that he has made. So we've looked at that, and now we're picking up the story. So if you've got a Bible this morning, it's Genesis 2, and we're picking it up in verse 4 this morning. And Josh Veeam is going to come and read the passage for us. So Josh, uh, up you come. Genesis 4, verse, Genesis 2, verse 4. This is the account of the heavens and the earth when they were created, where the Lord God, when the Lord God made the earth and the heavens. Now no shrub had yet appeared on the earth, and no plant had yet sprung up. For the Lord God had not yet sent rain on the earth, and there was no one to work the ground. But streams came up from the earth and watered the whole surface of the ground. Then the Lord God formed a man from the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. And the man became a living being. Now the Lord God had planted a garden in the east, in Eden, and there he put the man he had formed. The Lord God made all kinds of trees grow out of the ground, trees that were pleasing to the eye and good for food. In the middle of the garden were the tree of the life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. A river watering the garden flowed from Eden. From there it was separated into four headwaters. The name of the first is the Pishon. It winds through the entire land of Havilah, where there is gold. The gold of that land is good. Aromatic resin and onyx are also there. The name of the second river is the Jehon. It winds through the entire land of Cush. The name of the, river, of the third river is the Tigris. It runs along the east side of the, of the Shur. And the fourth river is the Euphrates. The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and take care of it. And the Lord God commanded the man, You're free to eat from any tree in the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. For when you eat from it, you will surely die. Well done, Josh. Thank you. Thank you. All right. So just as we get our bearings with this passage, let me, uh, let me start with this illustration. Uh, a lot of the time when you, when you go and see a movie, and at the beginning of a movie, you often have what is called the establishing shot. This big, wide-angle shot of maybe a landscape, uh, maybe a city, maybe a, maybe a planet, some great big macro kind of shot that is going to establish the context in which the first scene of the movie takes place. So you have this big wide angle shot or sequence of shots, and then what happens, of course, is the, the, the film, filmmakers zoom in on the action within that context. So they'll zoom in on particular people or particular things, and then you have a much more narrow uh, view of a story that is going to take place within this great big scene. So establishing shot, and then a zoomed in action sequence that follows. And that's kind of a way of thinking about what happens from Genesis 1 to Genesis 2 
in this journey that we've been on. So Genesis 1 is, is like the establishing shot of the Bible. It's this big, wide-angle vision of creation. It's the story of God making the heavens and the earth. You get this big picture view of all that God has made, all that God has brought into being. It's a huge story. It's a cosmic story. It's the opening shot of the movie. And then in Genesis 2, from verse 4, verse 5, the action narrows right in on a particular part of the creation story. So now in this passage, we have a much more narrow view, a much more particular view of a story that's going to unfold within creation. In Genesis 2, we zoom in on a particular place within creation, the Garden of Eden. We zoom in on particular people within creation, Adam and Eve, not just humanity in general. Now it's Adam and Eve. Uh, we zoom in on a particular day within creation, the sixth day. And so as you're reading through from Genesis 1 to 2, you can't read it in a strictly chronological sequence because Genesis 2 comes back, it circles back to day 6. After, even after the seventh day, you come back now and we zoom in on day 6 and we look in more detail and with more nuance at what God has created and what he has done on day 6 and how the action unfolds in this particular part of the biblical story. So Genesis 1, big establishing wide-angle shot. Genesis 2, narrow shot, specific action. Okay? So as the scene opens in Genesis 2, in verse 5, what we find is that you've got the earth there, you've got the land that has been created, but it's still fairly chaotic, uh, and it's still fairly desolate. It talks about no shrub has appeared on the earth, uh, no plant had sprung up because God had not yet sent rain on the earth. Now, this is a little bit confusing because if you remember back in Genesis 1, it was day 3 when God created vegetation. Uh, and here we are on day 6 now, and it sounds like there's no vegetation. So what's going on here? Well, in the words that are used here, in the particular words the author has used, the types of plants and crops that he's talking about are not just vegetation in general, but it specifically refers to cultivated crops. That's the nature of the Hebrew words that are used, it, literally crops of the field or shrubs of the field. This is not just wild vegetation. He's talking about cultivated crops that you would, that you would sow and plant and reap and harvest in an orderly, structured, systematic way that takes some purpose, that takes some intentionality. That's the kind of crops he's talking about. And he's saying, well, there's no one to work the land yet. And so, yes, there's vegetation in one sense. There's wild, untamed vegetation, but there is not yet this orderly system of cultivating crops so that we can get the food production system going for human beings. That hasn't happened yet because there's nobody to work the land. And so the picture you get here at the beginning of Genesis 2 is kind of like the picture that we had back near the beginning of Genesis 1. Do you remember we talked about tohu wabohu? way back in the early phrases and stages, and I know a lot of you have loved throwing that phrase around, tohu wabohu, the, the chaos, the, the, the desolation of the original earth when it was formed. And then you get to the beginning of Genesis 2 here, and there's the sense that even though now there, there is land and there is vegetation, it's still kind of like tohu wabohu. Uh, those specific words aren't used, but there's still the sense that things are chaotic, things are disordered. There's not yet any organization or order that has come into this. And so just as God brought life out of the tohu wabohu back in chapter 1, he's going to do the same thing again. But now he's going to do it through the human creatures that he creates. 
And so we come to the creation of the first man. In verse 7, Then the Lord God formed a man from the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living being. Now, the word for man is just the word, the Hebrew word, Adam. That's where we get Adam's name from. It just means man. And God created Adam, and we are told that he made him from the dust of the ground. Now, that's a little bit of a problem. Uh, If you read this as a scientific account of human origins and human biology, I looked up all the components of the human body this last week, all the elements of the human body, and guess what? Dust is not there. Dust is not one of them, as far as I could tell. There are all sorts of interesting things that make up our bodies I never realized, but dust wasn't on the list. So this is a bit of an issue for those who read the text as a strictly scientific account of human origins. I think it tells us that the dust must mean something else. There's a deeper meaning to being created from dust than just the literal composition of the human body. And sure enough, we get all the way down to the end of chapter 3. If you just look over to verse 19 in chapter 3, God says this, By the sweat of your brow you will eat your food until you return to the ground, since from it you were taken, for to dust, for dust you are, and to dust you will return. What we discover is that the idea of dust refers to human mortality. We're created as mortal beings. From dust you are, it doesn't literally mean we're made of dust, but it means we're made of these natural elements and chemicals and minerals that are shared with the earth. And when we die, left in our natural state, our bodies decay and rot and decompose, and these elements and minerals are absorbed back into the earth from which we came. We have this connectedness with the earth. And that's the sense of coming from dust and returning to dust. Not a literal description of the elements of the human body, but it's talking about our human mortality, that we, we were created in the beginning as mortal creatures. We were created as finite beings. We were created as temporal creatures with these bodies that wear out and get old and decay and eventually die. We're mortal. And Adam was made as a mortal being. We were not created as immortal in the beginning. We were created with mortality. Now, for some of you, that's triggering a little question in the back of your minds. Because you're thinking, hang on a minute. If we're mortal, if we were created mortal, if Adam was created mortal, then how could it be that sin was what introduced death into the world in chapter 3? I mean, Paul says in Romans... Death came through sin. And yet back here in Genesis 2, you've got a mortal creature who was already subject to death. So what's going on here? Good question. I'm glad you asked it. We'll come back to that, but just park that question for a minute, okay? Because there's another part of this chapter that relates back to that, and we will get to that. But I just want to follow the sequence through. So we'll come back to that. Good on you for asking the question. Right. Just look at where God placed this man. In verse 10 onwards, there's this beautiful description of this garden paradise that he places Adam, the Garden of Eden. This lush, expansive, sprawling garden, not like a little flower garden like you have at your place, but just massive, huge, incredibly lush garden with all kinds of trees and plants that are pleasing to the eye and, and good for fruit and there's a, a food and there's a river flowing through the garden and as it comes out of the Garden of Eden, it separates into four rivers and we have the names of the rivers and this is interesting because two of those rivers still exist, the Tigris and the Euphrates. Now that tells us a couple of things. It tells us firstly that this was a real place, 
That's a good reminder. This is not Alice in Wonderland. This, is a real, this was a real place. It was somewhere around the Tigris and the Euphrates River. Uh, it helps us locate the Garden of Eden with some level of accuracy. You can't be completely sure of exactly where it was, but it basically puts it somewhere around either Turkey, Syria, Iraq. The most common guess is Iraq, somewhere in what is now modern-day Iraq, uh, which is amazing when you think how troubled that part of the world is now. And yet this was the cradle of life, cradle of human life. Amazing. But this is somewhere around where the Garden of Eden first existed. But more important than trying to locate the exact place where the Garden of Eden was is understanding what it represents. If we think back to this temple image that we've been looking at, creation as a temple, creation as a great big cosmic temple, we want to think of the Garden of Eden as the most holy place within the temple. In fact, in the Jewish temple itself, in the physical temple that Solomon built, When the priests went into the Holy of Holies, the inner sanctuary of the temple, there were things in that room that were meant to remind them of the Garden of Eden. It was meant to be like this experience of stepping back into the original paradise. So, for example, the lampstand in the temple, it's described like the tree of life. It's the language that's used in the Bible. It kind of represents that tree of life. It's this idea of the inner sanctuary of the temple represents something of the original paradise of the Garden of Eden. And so when we read about the Garden of Eden in Genesis 2, we should make the same association. That what's being described here, it's like the the inner sanctuary within this incredible temple. God's made this amazing temple, this cathedral of creation, and now he creates the Holy of Holies, the Garden of Eden, right in the middle of it. That's how we want to think about it. That's the association we, we want to make with the Garden of Eden. Now, in the Garden of Eden, there were two trees, the tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. We're not going to deal with the tree of the knowledge of good and evil today because that becomes more of an issue in chapter 3 when the entrance of sin into the world. So we'll come back to that. But I want to just make a comment about this tree of life. The tree of life was a tree Adam was encouraged to eat from. He was allowed to eat from that one. In fact, it was essential that he ate from that tree. Because the tree of life in the Garden of Eden is what gave Adam ongoing, perpetual, continuing life. It's what kept him young. Now, this relates back to being created from dust. If the dust represents Adam created with a mortal body, so his body is subject to decay, the cells in his body are going to die, and naturally his body would eventually perish, But as long as Adam is eating from the tree of life, it counteracts the natural aging process of his mortal human body. Do you see how this works? So the tree of life is like the first anti-aging product on the market ever. It's it's probably the only one that's ever worked. Literally, it stopped Adam from age. It stopped his body from wearing out, decaying, and dying. It It could have been called the tree of youth. It kept him perpetually youthful. It kept his body in peak physical condition so that physically he just enjoyed perpetual existence as long as he continued to eat from the tree of life. So he was created mortal, but the tree of life counteracts the mortality and enables Adam to continue living as long as he keeps eating from the tree of life. That explains why after Adam sins, Adam and Eve sin, they're kicked out of the garden, they're barred from the tree of life, and what happens? Natural mortality kicks in, natural aging process kicks in, eventually they die. They still live longer than we do, but eventually they die because they couldn't eat from the tree of life 
anymore. So there is this connection between being created from dust, subject to mortality, but eating from the tree of life, which offsets that mortality. That explains why when Paul says in Romans, death entered the world through sin, that's true. Because human beings were created mortal, we were subject to death, yes, by nature of our mortality, but Adam and Eve never actually experienced death until they sinned, until they could no longer eat from the tree, and that's when death entered the world. So death did come through sin, but human beings were still created mortal in the beginning. Does that make sense? Created from dust, but eating from the tree of life, extending, continuing existence. All right. Now, let's look at what God put Adam in the garden to do. And this is where I want to land today and focus most of our time. Verse 15, the Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and take care of it. Two words there, work and care. The word work, the Hebrew word work, just means general word for serving could mean labor, service of any kind. Some of your translations may say cultivate or or till, referring to Adam working the ground, working the land. just means to serve. So Adam was put there to serve in the garden, to look after it, to cultivate it, to nurture it. And then the word care means to protect, to preserve, to prevent any harm coming to things. And so he was there to make sure the garden was looked after, to prevent the animals trampling all over things and doing damage to the garden. He was there to to uphold, to preserve, to protect. So Adam's role is to work and to care, to work and to care. We kind of have this perception, I think, of Adam sometimes just kind of sitting around all day, just frolicking in the garden, doing nothing. But you read this, God gave Adam a job description. He put him in the garden and he put him there to work. And, and he, he actually would have had quite a challenging role. I mean, this was a complex botanical system that Adam had to oversee. He was the chief gardener. So he would have been a botanist, a horticulturalist, an arborist, a landscape gardener. He had to hold together all of these roles. So Adam had a job description. Adam had work to do in the garden. He got up in the morning and he went to work in the garden. And I think that says something about the nature of human work. That work is good. Work is found right here in Genesis 2. It's the first thing that Adam's commanded to do when God puts him in the garden is work and care. Work and care. As human beings, we're created to work. Sometimes we think work only came into the story after the fall, after sin. And we think, oh, there's no way work could possibly be good. But it's right there. It's, it's part of our created purpose. It's part of our created intent. We were created to do stuff, not just to sit around all day idle. We we're created to get out there and, and get stuff done, to work, to achieve, to produce, to contribute, to develop and explore and organize and structure and administrate and all of these things. This is good. We're created to use our heads and our hearts and our hands and our feet and work. It's part of bearing the image of God. It's part of glorifying God. Work's a good thing. I think we have a hard time with this sometimes because we look at our own jobs and we're just not sure how this could possibly be God's, not my job, but, you know, just sometimes, (laughs) sometimes our jobs, I'm just saying, you know, our jobs, we're not sure how could this be what God created in the beginning. Um, I remember my first job was at Food Town. Anyone remember Food Town? Yes. Another Food Town employee over there ex-colleague. Uh, I, I worked at Foodtown. I earned $4.38 an hour, 
before tax. And so I almost spent more on petrol getting to Food Town than I earned at Food Town. And I had two great responsibilities at Food Town, packing bags and pushing trolleys. I never even graduated to checkout operator. They just didn't see the potential in me to reach those heights. So I packed the bags and pushed the trolleys. Now we think about jobs like that, and you've probably had jobs like that maybe in your past, and you look at that and you think, well, how could this be glorifying to God? You know, How could this be part of what we're created to do? But we've got to remember, we are now working in the post-fall era. Now, so we're working in a world that is shot through with sin in all kinds of ways, and sin has contaminated every part of our lives in our world, including our working lives. And so work that was supposed to be satisfying uh, can become monotonous and tedious and just drudgery. Uh, Work that's supposed to be fulfilling can become overwhelming and stressful and soul-destroying and all-consuming. That's not how it was supposed to be. Work gets damaged, and we end up working in ways that damage ourselves or that damage other people. But that's not how it was in the beginning. And just because we experience problems at work or we're in jobs we don't like doesn't mean that work itself is not a good thing. We were created to be working beings, to be active and to engage in the world around us and to contribute to life and culture and society and community around us. Work's a good thing. It was in the beginning. In fact, in this passage, there is even more significance to our work than we often recognize. These Hebrew words that are used to describe Adam's role, to work and to care, in verse 15. Those words are used together again in the Old Testament a few times, but always in a particular context, always in relation to particular people. And the context is... They're used of priests in the temple. Isn't that interesting in view of our little temple journey that we've been on? When these words are paired together again, these two verbs in the Old Testament, it's always in relation to the priests in the temple. So in Numbers 3, for example, I'll just quickly read you this description. You don't need to turn there. Numbers 3 verse 8 talks of the priests. They are to take care of, it's that word, all the furnishings of the tent of meeting. It's the tabernacle, the temple. Fulfilling the obligations of the Israelites by doing the work, is that word, of the tabernacle. And so the priests were there to serve, to work in the tabernacle. And they were there to care for the tabernacle and to make sure it wasn't damaged or or destroyed in any way. They were there to work and to care. And so just as Adam works and cares for this garden that God has placed him in, the priests work and care in the tabernacle. And can you see the connection? Can you see how this whole temple story is unfolding and the way it gives us such a stunning picture of creation? Just just put together the pieces that we've looked at over the last few weeks. God creates this great cosmic temple. He places us in the center of it as his image, his image bearers in the middle of the temple. God then comes to rest within the temple by his own presence. We looked at this last week. God moves into the temple, fills it with his presence. And now God creates the Holy of Holies within the temple, the inner sanctuary, which is the Garden of Eden. And he places Adam there as a priest to work and care for the temple. This whole story just keeps on emphasizing creation is this temple. And we are God's image bearers. We are God's priests within the temple. Adam was a landscape gardener, and yet he's described in the language 
of a priest. This priestly role, this sacred role. He he wasn't the kind of priest who wore robes and swung incense, but he was a priest nonetheless. His work was sacred. Can you hear how that gives us a whole new way of looking at our work as human beings? That when you work, when you engage in God's world, when you work and care, when you put those words together, when you work well, you work hard, you work with integrity, and you work in a way that you care. You care for others, you care for your colleagues, you care for the people you work with, you care about the impact of your work on other people. When you work and you care, you are in some sense functioning as a priest or a priestess within this world. You are doing sacred work. You are doing spiritual work. You are doing work that's glorifying to God. I know that's a hard thing to get your head around. And I think part of the reason we struggle with it is because we have in our minds this compartmentalization between spiritual things in our lives and secular things in our lives. And we've divided the world up and we've divided our life up into these two spheres. We have all our spiritual things over here, going to church, reading the Bible, praying, joining a life group, all that kind of stuff. And then we have our secular side of life. And that's our work and anything else that's not church related or spiritual or directly related to God. And for most of you, your jobs are in the secular category. And so we end up with a whole lot of Christians who have no idea how what happens on Sunday relates to what happens the other six days of the week. We have so many Christians who have no idea how to connect Sunday to Monday, how to integrate their faith with their working life. And they feel like their work doesn't matter to God and they cannot bring the two together. They live with this dichotomy as split people, a spiritual life and a secular life. And yet you find right here at the beginning of the biblical story, there is no dichotomy. There is no separation between those two realms. In fact, in the Bible, you will not find a word for secular. It doesn't exist. There's just not a category for it. There's no word for it because nothing to God is secular. If this entire world is created by God and important to Him and filled with His presence, then everything is spiritual, right? Every square inch of creation, every part of our lives, including our working life, is sacred and special and significant and spiritual and important to God. Our work is sacred, even if you, you're in a so-called secular vocation, that work is sacred. That work is a way in which you can glorify God simply by working at what you do with all your heart as working for God and not for people. Working as a Christian with Christian integrity and an upright character, glorifying God through your work. You are a priest in your workplace. We've got to try to get our heads around this, hard as it might be. You're a priest. Adam was a, was a gardener, and yet he was a priest in that garden, you are a salesperson, and as you walk into work tomorrow, you're walking in there as a priest or a priestess. You're a journalist, but as you go to work tomorrow, you're going in there as a priest doing sacred work. You're an electrician as you walk into work tomorrow. You're a priest in that place. You're a teacher. You walk into the classroom tomorrow. You're walking in there into sacred space as a teacher. You're an IT software programmer. You're a priest. You're a priestess in that environment. We were created to do spiritual work, no matter what kind of work we do. Now, I know we've got to qualify that a little bit. I know you, you can't say, well, I run a brothel, and that's spiritual work, and I'm a priest in my workplace. 
No, you're not. No, that doesn't work. You've got to think about the kind of work that you're doing and that that work needs to be morally and ethically sound to begin with. Someone emailed me last year and said, um, can I glorify God making cigarettes? And I wrote back and said, of course you can as long as you don't put tobacco in them. Now, I know there's lots of ambiguities that need to be ironed out. I know sometimes it's not that clear-cut whether the nature of your work itself is glorifying to God. We each need to ask those questions for ourselves. I used to work in public relations. I know a thing or two about ambiguities in the workplace. And those lines where you've got to gauge, is this okay? Are the values of what I'm doing compatible with my faith? We've got to constantly ask those questions. But if we are working in ways that are honourable to God. I don't just mean as as pastors and and missionaries and so on, but if we're just working in whatever job you have in ways that are honouring to God, you're working and you're caring, working and caring, working and caring. You're working with integrity, working as a Christian in that workplace, as an ambassador of Christ. The work you're doing is glorifying to God. It's part of how God created you to be. It's part of what God created you to do, to work to accomplish, to achieve. You are glorifying God in that workplace. The reformers were so big on this. We looked at it last year with Martin Luther, who said, the handmaid glorifies God by milking cows. If, if, if the handmaid glorifies God by milking cows, you can glorify God by being a butcher, baker, candlestick maker, whatever you are, you can glorify God in that space. You may be a homemaker, stay-at-home mum or dad. That's a space in which that's your work, one of the most noble professions there is. You glorify God in that space. You may be a student. That's your work in this season of life. You glorify God by being a student, by working at that with all your heart. And when we get the sense that our work is sacred, then I think we're going to be able to bring back together these things that really should never have been torn apart in our lives, this Sunday existence, and then the rest of our life. When you can understand that you are a priest, you're a priestess, you're going to be able to put the fragmented parts of your existence back together again and realize all of this is a space in which I can glorify God. Now, yes, we've always got to be aware of the ways that work can become damaged. And this is not an excuse to become a workaholic and say, my work's glorifying to God, so I'm going to let my life be ruled by it. No, no. We we live in the post-fall era, remember, and sin gets in there and it corrupts our working life. We still need to work and care, remember. Part of that is caring for yourself in your workplace, putting boundaries, looking after your soul. So this is not an excuse to work in ways that are damaging to you or anyone else. But when we work well, we're bringing our, our lives together in this holistic way of saying, wherever God's placed me, whatever assignment he's given me, whatever job I'm in, even if now it is a bit mundane or it is really stressful, this is still a place where I can glorify God, not just when I come to church on Sunday, but when I go to work on Monday. And that should give you much, much greater dignity in your workplace, recognizing this is not just something you do purely to make money. This is not just something you do to get through the day to provide for your family. This is one of the ways that you can glorify God, that you can bear his image and you live in line with your created purpose. We need the, the word we had last week on rest and we need the word that we have today on work. And we've got to hold those two things together. We're created to have a healthy rhythm of working and resting. We need both in our lives. But can you just for a minute as we finish, can you just picture the workplace that you're going back into this week? 
or whatever space it is that you're going back into this week, whatever's going to engage your time, whatever's going to keep you busy this week, can you picture that? Can you think of that as a sacred space? When you step into the office tomorrow, when you step into the classroom, when you step into the, the courtroom, when you step into wherever it is, the university lecture room, can you think of yourself as entering into sacred space? Not just secular space, but a sacred space. That is a space in which you can encounter the presence of God. Can you think of your work as being sacred? As being holy? As being important? God cares about the work that you do. It is valuable to him. Can you think about that? That your work is sacred and important to God? Can you possibly see yourself as you go to work tomorrow as a priest or a priestess? Doing work that's not just secular, mundane stuff, but you're a priest. You are doing sacred work. You are, in a sense, doing God's work as you engage, as you work and care. Work and care for God's world, conscious of his presence with you as you do those things. So let's work at whatever God's given us to do with all of our hearts as working for God and not for people. And let's care. As we work, when you bring those two words together, only when they are together, we work, but we also work in a way that we care. That's what sets us apart. When we do those things, we are being God's image bearers. We're fulfilling our purpose and we are glorifying God. Amen. Let's pray. God, we thank you that you have made us to work, to engage, to be active. We thank you that every part of our life is important to you. And we just think, God, for a minute now, of all the different vocations and jobs that are represented here in the room, all the different occupations that are here, through from students to retirees, all of the ways in which we spend our time and fill our days. God, we think about those that are paid for the work they do and those that volunteer, those that are part-time or full-time, and just the range of different occupations within this city and within this world that we have. And I pray now, God, that you would give us a bigger vision of the work that we do as being holy, as being sacred, as being important to you. We thank you for the gift of work, even though it doesn't feel like a gift sometimes. And I pray that for each of us, you would help us to work in a way that is honoring to you as we think about how we go about our days, as we think about how we conduct ourselves. God, help us to think about how we bring you into our jobs, bring you into our workplace as we interact with other people. Lord, the kinds of bosses or employees or directors that we are, God, in all of these different spheres. Lord, help us to interact with those that we work with in ways that are honoring to you in ways that truly reflect who you are. And I pray, God, as we enter into our workspace this week, that we would do it in your name, that we would do it with that sense of calling, that we are called to this, that sense of vocation, and that we would seek to work with all our heart, knowing that ultimately we're working for you and not for human masters. Give us that vision of our work, and we pray that we'd glorify you in those spaces that we work this week. For Christ's sake. Amen. This has been a teaching message from Shaw Community Church. For more of our teaching resources, or to donate to our teaching resource ministry, or for more information on Shaw Community Church, visit www.shaw.org.nz. Alternatively, you can email office at shaw.org.nz or phone 09 
415 0455. Thank you for listening. <laughs>